right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Uh, DJ and Tron are out on the West Coast. Big Randy, I believe, is back in Ohio. Neil has gone back to Brooklyn. He is uh, the snowbird has gone back north, although it's pretty, pretty snowy still up there. So I'm joined by uh, our trusted friend from ESPN, the magazine, ESPN.com, Mr. Kevin Van Valkenburg. Uh, thank you for being here on a Sunday night. Chris, good morning. <laughs> So excited. It is morning in the UK, so yeah, yeah that works. I'm so excited to continue my role as the fifth Beatle here. The, fi- <laughs> or the sixth Beatle, or whatever it is now. Something so. like that. Yeah. Uh, how much golf did you get to watch this weekend? Uh, a little bit here and there. Uh, a bunch on Saturday, a uh, little bit today. Um, so I feel... Uh, I felt like it was enough, you know? You don't want to watch too much of the Pro-Am, lest you... Um, take a driver and bounce it off your head uh, in frustration. But, uh, you know, for you, probably someone who watched a lot of it, I'm excited to hear your thoughts as well. Hey, guess what I did this weekend? I watched way too much golf, and I'm ready Woo! to bang a driver off my head. <laughs> um, just to give a quick run of show, we're going to talk AT&T, we're going to talk Vic Open, and then the back half of this, uh, we, I wanted to, we're going to talk in great length about the recent distance report from the USGA and then a couple other uh, grab bag things here at the end. But uh, not to put the cart in front of the horse, um, I'm not going to go straight to Phil. We're going to say we're going to mention who won the golf tournament, of course, first. Nick yeah. Taylor, a sincerely impressive performance. Uh, conditions got real, really, really tough on the back nine today. Had a very big scare, played a stretch of holes in four over par. He was up by five, and that lead shrunk all the way down to two. But he shot, like, it looked ugly, but he shot 69 today. Two under in crazy tough conditions. So hats off to him. Congratulations. First wire-to-wire Canadian winner on the PGA Tour since 19, 1960. I don't know what that means, but that's a stat, apparently. It means Canadians can be real proud of someone other than Mike Weir. So There you go. They have Man, that I, now. I got to say, I love Canadians. My grandfather basically grew up in Canada. He spent, like, most of his youth in Montreal. So I have, like, special kinship for him. But Canadians are so proud of Canadian athletes. Like we joke about this sometimes with our with our buddy Sarson, and Canadians like like he was Sarson was saying you know, how his dad is just always really like well how'd Mike Weir do you know how you know how's uh how, how you know how, how's Gretzky doing you know that kind of thing it's like Canadians love Canadians you got to respect it they uh, there's no country that rides harder for their countrymen than Canadians and I just did a, I just literally just did a hit on a Canadian television show because they wanted to talk Nick Taylor at 8 30 on a Sunday night and uh like, tell us what you know about Nick Taylor I was like oh, oh man yeah. that, um. I don't know if I'm here for that <laughs> which like to be honest I, I don't I'm, I swear this isn't going to be all coverage thing I didn't really learn a whole lot about Nick Taylor today from watching him for five and a half hours on television I was so I was l- listening to the live um, radio feed of much of the day, and I started like checking out stuff on my phone. And it wasn't until like literally like on the seventeenth hole where they're talking about like, oh Nick Taylor, you know when he was here last year, he posted a picture on Instagram of you know his wife was expecting at the U.S. Open, and uh, and now they have a kid and they're here. I was like, oh that would have been like fun to like know on like the second hole, like it, basically like Nick Taylor was a blank canvas, which to sort of you know, throughout the day to not really have anything to say about. So that would have been at least something. Nick Taylor, yeah. new father. You know, he could teach his kid how to play Mario Kart because he's apparently 
really good at Mario Kart is the other thing I know about him. Yeah, that's going to be now the thing is the Mario Kart, which I have a feeling. Uh, Soft Shank Spinner wrote in. He said that uh, Nick Taylor plays out of a public golf course in British Columbia. That is the hardest damn greens you'll ever see. He has three or four 59s, and Adam Hadwin's dad is the pro there. So if, if they mention that on the broadcast, it gl- I glossed it, everything. Basically, they say kind of no. just because just glosses right over me. So I apologize if I missed that, but that was kind of a cool little cool little nugget to know about uh, about him. But in a, in a like a, someone probably should have had like some poor intern like scrambling and checking, doing whatever he could to like figure out some tidbits about Nick Taylor. But you know, it's possible that that doesn't happen at CBS. That they just sort of. Check the Wikipedia page, which I imagine is not very extensive in Nick Taylor's case. It is not, because that's exactly <laughs> what I did. But anyways, here's a dog's butthole here on the beach. And let's, uh, we'll be right back. My kids, when we were watching on Saturday, were very excited to see the sea otters. So, you know, that's the, maybe the target demo of there like, you the go. 10-year-old there you go. Listen, Dad, oh, look, a sea otter. I fully, I fully admit that there is probably a big, um, large amount of people that enjoy the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, watching it on television every week. I think it's also fair to say that not a lot of those people are the ones tuning into this podcast. So I, I get it. I get why they do it. I just hate it. So that's just pretty much <laughs> wearing that out. I know it's what's going to happen, and I still need to watch it because this is my job, and I don't have to hate it any less because I can't. <laughs> I kind of wonder how much that is. I mean, I'm sure that's what CBS would say is like, oh, you guys are the you know, the elitist sort of snotty 2%. But I kind of wonder, like, anymore, is it one of those sort of old relics that's basically, like, there's just no public information about, like, how much people kind of are tired of the whole thing? I mean, I, I do, I keep always try to keep in mind, I think it's DJ's take where he was like, you know, if when you're there, it's actually, like, fun. It's actually, sure. you know, you, you buy into the sort of campiness of it and Bill Murray doing the same kind of jokes that he's been doing for 20 years and, like, on the ground, like great event, but as a broadcast thing, like horrendous. And I wonder if that's true at large, like if, if we're really actually in the minority or if there's a lot of really people who are like, man, this is pretty tired. I mean, I, I was making a joke about it on Twitter about how, oh man, this is like what it would be like if during the NBA season, there were an actual like NBA jams, like rock and jock thing that counted towards the standings, whatever. And I think Joel Beale was making a joke of like, man, this event wishes it had the celebrities that MTV had back in the day. <laughs> and it's true. Like, other than Bill Murray, like, you're you're really starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel if, like, Timberlake's not there and you're getting, you know, I mean, there's just a, this is a lot of B-level celebrities. I mean, when Ray Romano was in it this year, I was like, oh, Ray Romano's totally relevant because I just watched The Irishman and he's like plays a big role in that. So, like, all, all of a sudden, Ray Romano's celebrity is, like, relevant again. Uh, but you know, I mean, we were joking about like Gary Mule Deer, but like he was a big part of the broadcast for like a long time. <laughs> I don't know if Gary Gary Mule Deer is eighty years old. I looked it up. I don't know if he was actually in this event, but if he was, you wouldn't. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. I'd be like, yeah, oh there, Gary Mule Deer is definitely in here. I'm going to ask you a question that's just going <laughs> to blow your mind about okay. about all this. Okay, please do. I, okay, I am going to concede the point that showing some of the celebrities. Makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> Why in the world would any of that need to be live? 
Like, what? Why would you need to be? If you don't know what's going to happen with an AM, why would it? Why would you need to show it live? Like, hey, if he, yeah, if he hits a beautiful shank, like tape that and then bring uh-huh. it, roll it right in. Is with like a segment that shows who's here, what's going on around here. Like yeah. that segment they did on Macklemore on seventeen. Oh, he, he took about about ninety eight seconds standing over the ball and then topped it about thirty feet. Which, it, like, if you're gonna, if he's gonna do that, you gotta like laugh at him. Like you gotta like, if you, if this, if you're gonna play this entertainment factor of it, let us make make fun of the guy. I don't know. Oh, it, absolutely. There's just no reason. And again, it's separating out the celebrities versus the like this the board member of the Pebble Beach Company <laughs> and the CEO of blah blah blah. And they actually literally has, Lance like sits with a yellow legal pad that has names on it, and he goes through and crosses people off as they show. I'm on TV. That's their goal for the day. We oh, on Saturday, which again, I don't know why I watch it. I don't know why it, I, I I should say I know why I watch it. I don't know why anybody listening would watch that. But I just think it's it's got to be a relic of an older time. Like it used to be, maybe sort of like oh man, like we get to see this fun event where like sure. people you know golf with like the pros and stuff. And now I just think it's like one of those things that represents how golf is sort of behind the times in so many ways. Where it's like nobody is really like clamoring other than Bill Murray for any of this stuff. Like it's just there's no huge like Macklemore Ray Romano contingent out there that's like, oh gosh, I gotta see, you know, this. I mean, I could see like it it's mildly interesting if the Manning brothers are involved or whatever, because they're famous in a way that sort of transcends uh sports, but man, just like I like, I, I I like that can, part. Show me yeah. Eli and Peyton. I asked, show me some Steve Young. Like I'm fine with that. I think there's a balance to be had. I just don't know if yeah. they're really meeting that balance. <laughs> I mean, I guess I get the I get why they would show like the FedEx chairman or whatever. As FedEx is paying sure, know, yeah, so much sense. money or whatever. But like you know, Golf Digest Jerry Tardy. Like, why is that relevant to me at all? Like, I just do not care. Yeah. Then all due respect to Jerry, I'm sure he's a fine player. Like, I hear this story multiple times on several broadcasts about how he played, went all through a Scotland trip with one ball. Why, as a viewer, that is interesting to me. I don't know. I can I can help you there. It's not. Uh, <laughs> can we talk about? I thought I really thought that you know how many times have we seen it for Phil. That you know, coming back after crossing the Red Sea, that he's just ready to roll in the West Coast swing. I thought this was going to be his time. <laughs> he's, I, he seemed a little bit sun drained there at the end. The, uh, the, the restorative week that he spent uh, in the kingdom didn't quite uh, get, get him to the cross the finish line. I forty nine years old, four straight weeks, and including a trip to Saudi Arabia. Like that's a impressive performance considering all those factors. He look, all due respect to him. He's maybe one of the most interesting athletes of my entire life, and I have gone like through various periods where I loved him and various periods where I thought, like, man, I, I'm a little bit weary of this uh, routine. I can't – he's still, like, always interesting, you know? I mean, literally, he's missing greens today by 40 yards on some shots that is just like, what are you doing? And the he's Garrido! getting up and down from, like, you know, behind porta potties and such. Uh, you know, it's just – I, I don't it, – it's so amazing that he is still this kind of vaudevillian character who's just, you know, constantly hustling and gambling and almost went to prison a few years ago and, you know, has, has just lived this amazing American life and continues to I, – I, you know, he knows exactly how to feed the media just enough to sort of buy into his shtick every week. And so, hey, man, like it – 
I, I thought it was totally insane and a total vanity play. This whole like just swing at the shit out of the ball every time, and it was like, oh, this is this is like guy who's really struggling with the fact that he's getting older and it's a vanity thing that makes him feel like I can still drive it really far and it's awesome and it basically ruined the rest of his game. But, you know, he's now all of a sudden he's sort of figured out like he's figured finished second and finished third this week and probably back inside the top 50 or close to it. So he'll get into the WGC and get into match play and maybe that'll get him into the US Open. He won't have to take the the thing so i mean well, he's I not th- gonna take it anyways apparently he's, he's yeah. not taking a special exemption to the u.s open Man. um i will say but, but before we sort of like move on from nick taylor and and that when he's chipped in and basically like snatched phil's soul out of his body like that was a pretty big stones movement yeah. moment right there because if he if he hits that 10 feet by and phil makes the putt or whatever and all of a sudden it's down to one or they're tied like maybe totally different ball game but as it was like all of a sudden he chips that in and phil like hangs his head and then he ends up winning by four and it's like you realize like oh you mean phil wasn't going to close by hitting two out of the last 12 greens oh my <laughs> like God. that that wasn't gonna be a productive way to finish this out well that's what i kind of pointed out i made that that joke on on twitter about like hey he's probably worn out he's losing steam here and he made that putt that after that ridiculous up and down on uh, 13, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, oh, hmm, do you want to delete that one? I'm like, no, dude, no. the guy can't find the club face right now. Like, I don't people, think he's going to win this. People think that, and we're going to hear a lot about this if he does get into Wingfoot, that like he really blew it at Wingfoot or whatever. And yeah, like he stood on the 72nd tee, uh, you know, with the with the one stroke lead. So he can certainly have some regrets about that was the US Open. But I've always felt that like Marion was a much worse sort of collapse because he actually played like okay that day and he was probably like just needed to play a little bit better whereas at, at wingfoot he played like garbage like Ass. all sunday he hit two of 14 fairways on the fucking sunday of the u.s open and was still somehow like wobbling to the 18th tee with a one-stroke lead like he had no business being in that tournament and was just like short gaming his butt off and so like i always have felt like that was sort of an inevitable collapse like there was almost no way that he was going to ride that pony into the into the whole you know station but whereas marion like he just was he was there he was there he was there he was actually like made that eagle and he just needed to play a little bit better and he just kept making like kind of dumb mental errors as opposed to like he couldn't find the face that shot on 13 i still think about going long on that with like a gap wedge or whatever that was but yeah i think either he has said this or he would say it uh, that you know, he considers Marion the biggest sting because, like, Wingfoot that day, he just didn't have it, you know. And he didn't have it before the round and knew going into the round that he just didn't have it, and it was a miracle that he was that close. But, you know, I, I definitely haven't written Phil off at any point. I think uh, the future of his – I think I made the comment on a, re, a recent pause. Like, it might be gone. And, you know, some people were kind of coming around this week. I'm like, oh, looks like it's not gone. It's like, well, I mean, he won this event last year and nothing happened after that. So he really is a horse for course for this event. And I know there's three courses, but like he he thrives in this event. Obviously, he had a great finish in Saudi Arabia as well. He's definitely not done, but this doesn't this doesn't like change any projection that I have for the rest of the year for Phil. Does it for you? I don't think so. I yeah. just think that he he's not a – I mean, today it sort of showed up, and it kind of showed up on Saturday too, but he kind of short-gamed it around it. But he's lost what made him a truly great player, which was his iron play. Like that was where he, he was as good at approach as anybody in the game, and he was always wild off the tee. 
And so, you know, that's where I think like if I, if I had total control over Phil's career, if I was like his coach or someone and could say, what are we going to focus on? I'd be like, let's, let's just lean on your strengths, man. Like you're really great from mid irons in or even long irons. Let's stop trying to freaking scramble from all over hell and get the ball in the fairway. And there was a time in his career, I think it was, you know, a time when he around when he won the British where he was kind of like, oh yeah, like I'm going to hit this two wood off the tee, this Frankenwood or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to basically rely on my irons to, to hang in there. And when it was putting was good enough, like he was, you know, probably either the third or second best player in the world. And I wish that he would sort of focus on that. But I, I just think, he likes too much the idea of like, oh yeah, I I can still hit it past you boys. Like I'm still, you know, mashing it out here, and that's just to me like, you know, that's that's not going to be a long term strategy. Yeah, he'll still. Here, here's what's going to happen with Phil. He's going to be 54 or 55, and he's going to have some ridiculous Friday at Augusta where he shoots mm-hmm. 67, and he's you know he's like sunburnt and wrinkled and like <laughs> looking. And he's just going to have that sort of twinkle in his eye, and he's going to be like, "I, you know, I think I'm in this." And then he'll follow it up with 78. But there will be a moment in a major still where I think he will come flying up the leaderboard, and it will probably be in his 50s, and it'll be at a place like Augusta, or it could be a British. Uh, but I just don't think like anybody who thinks he's got a chance at the U.S. Open. I mean, I, you, you are talking to the guy who said that Tiger should go coach instead of playing. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be happy to. To provide the motivation for Phil, that I jinx out. it into happening. That would be that, that be would amazing? be the best way to do it. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I'll take all the credit. It almost <laughs> sounds like when I hear him talk about the U.S. Open now, it comes from like a source of like resignation. Like, yeah, it's like I I, I gave him my best effort. Like, if it happens, it happens. But totally, just what happened at Shinnecock and running and hitting the putt. Like, I just I I'd be stunned, stunned if that happened. But Tiger Woods also won the Masters last year, so quite literally <laughs> anything could happen. Um, yeah. A couple questions we got about Pebble before we move on. Uh, the, these two, these are two, one and the same. I'm going to ask them both. M. Weirzy asked, is Pebble overrated? Never seemed to have that exciting of a finish here. He said, exclude broadcasting and the scenic views. Hmm. I think, yeah, let's, and I'll ask this next one too. This is a really good one. Uh, from at Variety Packs, how would you reroute Pebble to make the back nine more interesting? Mm-hmm. Um and so this this was going around on Twitter during the US Open. The golf architect Jay Blasey shared some mm-hmm. images of a potential rerouting and it I, I about lost my shit when I saw this routing for how cool yeah. it looked. And kind of what I've always felt from that stretch from eleven to sixteen, like there's some nuance in there, there's some good holes in there. I, I'm not saying they're completely blah. Yeah, but it's also sitting on some of the most crazy land in the world for golf, and in relation to that, yeah, they're a bit blah. So he reroutes kind of once you come off eight green, you actually go mm-hmm. inward on the ninth, um, mm-hmm. and this is something you see at like Pacific Dunes or some of the the, the banded courses where you touch the touch the water for a while, you go away from it for a while, and then come back the opposite direction on the water yeah. to really kind of give a different, varied look to it. And my the knock I guess on on that amazing stretch from Pebble is you know holes four through ten all have the ocean to the right, mm-hmm. and so his rerouting was to make number nine a long long par five that it okay. is inland, and then you play you basically play it all the way back to that top right corner I forget what direction that is of the of the of the property but then you play the tenth straight downhill 
back towards the ocean with a green on the ocean. So that's what that 11th tee is. Your back's towards the water, and it kind of doesn't really take advantage of all the view. And then you come play 10 and 11 uh, alongside the water with the water to your left, which is a really cool little wrinkle as well. So, or sorry, his 11th and 12th uh, would be, you know, dog legs to the left with water uh, to the, uh, the cliffs to the left. And it's like, whoa, once you see this, and it's kind of, it's just triggering. 13 becomes yeah. a par three, and then 14 is a par four up to the orig- the actual green site for 14. So uh, I think Pebble, you know, we've had a lot of conversations on here. Pebble, I think, was overrated for a long time, and then the conversation became, is it overrated, and it somehow became underrated. There's a lot of nuance to it. It's really cool to see it playing as firm as it was, and in those conditions, I thought that made for a fascinating test. You could tell by all the separation at the top that yeah. it was a good tournament, um, especially, you know, if, if you're able to clear yourself from the field that far, uh, as much as even the top 10 was able to kind of clear themselves. I think that's a good sign of a good golf tournament. So yeah. where do you stand on Pebble being overrated and the re, the potential re It's not going to happen, but the proposed sure. on Twitter rerouting of Pebble. <laughs> the magical rerouting. Yeah. What would I do to Augusta if I could change the rerouting <laughs> of Augusta? Uh, I've always, I was wondering, actually, I remember this, uh, seeing it during the US Open and um, the sort of theoretical bouncing around. And I, I'm actually looking at it now because I sort of, pull it up and it, it does look pretty awesome and it's like something that you know is a total pipe dream um because i remember i remember the discussion part of the discussion is like you'd have to shut down pebble for a sure. year something to do it which is like basically like willing to eat 20 million dollars in lost revenue or whatever it is i mean I, is it the the resort that owns the or is it the what exactly who's the owner technically the pebble beach pebble? company which is okay yeah the resort and they own several other courses too i don't yeah. i i don't know which ones exactly i'm I, honestly not that that well versed in the region right um i mean what i think it was great about pebble is that it's it's creative golf in the sense of like there's not really that many flat lies out there you can't just pound driver the greens are small so you have to be super precise and the wind is almost always sort of factor so it's golf in a way that's unlike most of the rest of the pga tour golf like it's it's a uh, you know, it's not that different than Bandon or, you know, my guess like uh, Cypress or some of the other sort of coastal uh, great golf courses. I don't think I would pay, honestly, $600 to play it. But I think like as a tournament golf course, like it's still really neat and unique and is sort of, you know, kind of hollowed ground when it comes to American golf just because, you know, I mean, this is where Tom Watson chipped in and it's, I, one thing that doesn't, it's irrelevant now thinking back, but like I always remember Tiger hitting that big sweeping uh, slice around the tree when he was dressed in, as the Tanimal uh, in all tan uh, on, on the Saturday. <laughs> and thinking like, <laughs> I think that was on ESPN. And he, you know, he, he was playing with those big, ugly Nike clubs back then. And so he hit that bomb three wood and sort of like spun out of there. And I remember whoever it was, was the announcer was like, Tiger's back, you know, and that was that was 2010. And it was so everyone was kind of waiting for him to like become Tiger again. And God, you know, the fact that it didn't happen for like another decade is kind of crazy because in that moment it felt like, oh, this is what Tiger used to do. It's like he used to hit balls under that, you know, tree and then pull off these amazing creative shots that, you know, he made, I think he made Eagle there to shoot 65 or 66 or something that day and be within whatever it was, a few shots of DJ. And you're thinking like, oh, this is finally like, we're going to get the tiger come back and it's iconic course. And so like, yeah, there's been like some good finishes there. It just gets really hard. So it's, that's why 
some guys end up separating a lot, you know, like it's, I don't know. I don't, should there be like, you know, dramatic, I mean, Watson chipped in on 17 and that kind of changed. That was like a huge iconic moment in the history of the tournament. So I don't know if it's like, there hasn't been, there's been some dramatic things. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I think that they've kind of chipped away at some issues with, with the course in recent years. You know, they've redone the 17th green, they've redone the 14th green. I think there's still a couple more that could probably add, they could add some intrigue to, um, personally, even at a place like Pebble, I don't love the small greens. I think it it becomes less of a test at a certain point when it's like this firm. And if you're going to have rough around the greens anyways, and the ball's just going to stop shortly off the green, it's not much of a challenge, I think. I mean, with that much undulation in the greens, I'd like to see them just a bit bigger just because there's still a ton of strategy and how much you want to go at pins. Because as of right now, especially when the wind's blowing that hard, you're just holding on for dear life trying to find a putting surface, even pros, even at the top level. And there's not that much strategy, not as much strategy that comes into, you know, how what, do I want to go at this pin? Do I want to leave it below it because the slope does this, blah, blah, blah. You're just kind of holding on for dear life. So that's kind of nitpicking pebble. I know it's it's a uh, often ridiculed thing uh, of woke golf to ridicule or to you know, <laughs> pick apart pebble but uh, a couple things before we move on from this uh spieth back in the top 50 top 10 yeah. low round of He's the day back. which like he has sucked on every weekend basically forever um since like for the last two years or last year and so to have that round uh, it was that's that's hopefully a sign of things to come we're looking for anything but yeah. uh you don't want to be too late to the party if he does get this thing turned around Jordan, if you're listening, thanks for for validating me and Solly's continuing belief in you. Uh, we're two of the few. We're undying, holding. not continuing. Undying belief. Undying. Excuse me. We are not undying. going anywhere. All right. It is going to happen. Uh, I was I was He's thinking I was like, man, just like go back and listen to the pod, man. He talks about how close he was. I was like, oh shit, we recorded that last March. <laughs> it's been eleven months. Like we're t- we're ready for some results, uh, but hopefully this is a sign of things to come. Um, he just needs one. Just needs, just needs one. one. Just needs one. It's, and it's going to like, it won't maybe cure every ill, but it's going to give such a yep. shot of confidence when it happens. And he's too good to not get one that just kind of restores some of the magic. Uh, Jason Brand asked, what was the best part of CBS coverage? Surely there must have been something. <gasps> I'm here for the negative coverage takes. Don't get me wrong, but I want one positive. I thought they really like made an effort to mix up some camera views this week. I mean, Phil okay. Phil picked up one of the cameras yeah. and threw it to the side. <laughs> one of those new cameras that might not stick around. Uh, he said it was moving. It makes a noise when it's moving. But uh, the ground, like, I like they were doing some different stuff with some of the handhelds, kind of some different panning. They look like there was at least an effort there. I mean, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll give a little credit where credit's due. Okay. But. I'll, I'll defer to you on that one. I guess I was, uh, I'm, this doesn't, this goes against the question, but. What, how come they didn't do the drone shots that like they did at uh, the Fox did? Like, is it just laziness? Like, what, I thought that the drone thing was such a neat thing that Fox did during the US Open. I thought CBS might be like, oh yeah, let's do that too. Oh God, no! Oh no! <laughs> oh, I, I think I don't know if you were joking or not. Like, they're not going to do drone. Uh, I will give them a pass on that because that is Fox's ability to come in once a year and flex muscles. When they move this ship from week to week, it yeah. doesn't. They're not gonna do that, and they can't do I mean, that. They're not capable. You can get a you can get a drone at Target for like three thousand dollars. Yeah, the live like feed and stuff, and how they do that is not as simple as Fox made it look. I think so. Okay. I'll give them passing that. I don't know. It's basically the same thing. Did you see that floating leaderboard out over the water for some reason that <laughs> no one was asking for? I, I, 
Hey, hey, I got an idea in this production meeting. What do you think we should do this year? Should we show more golfers? Nah, let's do a hologram leaderboard in the middle of the... What about <laughs> a weird of kind of pro tracer red line thing for a shot that happened five minutes ago? Yeah, no, no, no. We don't need to see that. No, no, no. Like, not, not even a little bit. All right, now here's this dog's ass. <laughs> That's basically how it goes. So, okay. We're done. We're done, CBS. We're done moving on. Moving on from PGA Tour Talk. I, I want to talk about how much fun it was to watch professional golf again in Australia. Did you watch yeah. much of the Vic Open this week? Uh, I had it on Saturday night uh, just to sort of, uh, you know, support the the game and uh, was do fold some laundry and uh, sitting around and watching it. Some. I mean, I, I love golf uh, and I wish that there was just more of it in the United States where you cannot just hit it to a number mm. and then the ball stops. Like it's just so much fun to watch people have to chase shots in or have to think about the elements. And, and I just, you know, I think why it's such a fun sort of like little event to have all this going on at the same time. Why wouldn't this work in the U S like, why couldn't the sort of LPGA and the PGA tour get together and be like, yeah, let's totally have like two tournaments in, in one spot. And and just sort of help it benefit the game in general. Like, I think it would be so fun to watch, you know, Lexi Thompson and Jordan Spieth playing the same hole within, you know, a couple hours of one another. I'm my a- kids would love that. My <laughs> girls, my girls freaking absolutely are golf nerds. And, you know, so they would like, they, they have a better idea of like who Brant Snedeker is than Ron James. And so like, they would love to, see that girls could do that i don't know why like it's so hard to put together in the u.s we're gonna put that aside for one second just put a pin in that all right we're gonna get to that first we have to give a hearty congratulations to callaway staffer minwoo lee he's the brother of lpga standout minji lee he won the european tour side of the trophy at the vic open he uh his first european tour win bag full of callaway clubs a callaway chrome soft x golf ball and an odyssey stroke lab 10 putter i don't the rumor was that he heard about my FSGA Winter Series win with the Stroke Lab 10 putter, right. and after I switched to it, uh, he gained 6.54 strokes putting on the week. Uh, I had I had I gained seven with it, but it's not that big of a deal. Uh, Good job. That wasn't in the yeah. copy either. It's um, <laughs> so amazing they have uh, strokes gained. I know the Winter the Series. Florida, the Winter series <laughs> it is the golf genius is really bucket its head. Let me tell you. Also in the bag for Lee, a set of Callaway Jaws MD5 wedges. Tron is telling me that uh, he would actually like to call an investigation to the legality of these wedges because of how hard they spin. Uh, rounding out the bag were his artificial intelligence-enabled driver and fairway wood along a set of a set of Apex Muscleback irons. For more on Minwoo's equipment, check out CallawayGolf.com and, and OdysseyGolf.com. Again, that's CallawayGolf.com and OdysseyGolf.com. Back to what you said. Honestly, I watched. So I really only watched it on on Saturday night as well. It's a wild Saturday night here at the uh, at the Solomon household. I honestly, I kind of forgot as I'm watching it. Forgot might not be the right word that it was two different tournaments going on at once. It was yeah. so seamless. It, I just, <laughs> you know what I mean. I, honestly, I was laughing at. As I promised I was dumb at CBS, but laughing at CBS's inability to cover one tournament. And Sky's ability to just cover two simultaneously and me not even realize that it was two different tournaments. You know what I mean? I don't know how well, they did it. To, shout out to Sky that just understands that like golf nerd junkies like us just want to watch golf. Like we truly don't care about this sort of branding or whatever, or the you know various like slow motion kind of cutaways. So they're just going to show you the golf. And so maybe it's easier when that's what your priorities are. 
They do these great... So the wind was such a dictating factor. And they do these great graphics. They show an overhead vision of the hole and the wind direction. And it, the wind mattered so much because of how firm the conditions were. I mean, there were so many short par fours that you know you would just look at it and be like, oh, these guys are just going to bully this hole. But it just wasn't the case. The bunkers were so well placed. The, court, the golf course is called 13th Beach. Uh, it's another Melbourne sandbelt course. It's kind of near. It's on the southern coast, just southwest of Melbourne, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to give the proper proper uh, props, if you will, for I don't know with the courage I guess it takes to do an event like that. European tours mm-hmm. obviously willing to try anything, and uh, it was it made for great viewing. It was really cool to watch how the women and the men handled the the, the same conditions, same day, just different tees. And it just didn't feel all that different. The T markers did not feel important. The distance yeah. of the hole did not feel important. And when we get to the back half of this, when we're going to talk about the distance in golf, I just watched that whole thing and I was like, you know what, golf, this is distance is not an issue in this golf tournament that I'm watching right now. It is 100% not an issue. And that goes to tournament setup. I love how, in general, like bipolar, we feel about the European tour. Like sometimes I'm like, you know what, you SOBs, how dare you get in bed with these murderous dictators? And then sometimes I'm like, man, like I love the shot clock. So you got, you really guys, I love you just how inventive you are. Like, hey, two tournaments at once, bring it on. I do appreciate their willingness to try anything. I also will reserve the right to disagree with some of the decisions they make because they don't make it very pat, very far in the meetings of like the half baked ideas before it just becomes final, done, done deal. We're doing it. <laughs> so I mean, their their social media is so good, and yet here they are, like getting you know in bed with some of the worst people. Yeah, I mean, as many look as fans, we can come up with all these ideas and encourage them for all this. You know, they put a tee box on top of a pool house in Turkey, and they do all this stuff, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make money. And the European yeah. Tour doesn't really make money, unfortunately, aside from the Ryder Cup. So. Like that's part of what is fun for fans to dream about, but the answer to every question you know, you, you put uh, what we just put a pin in. Why don't the PGA Tour and LPGA Tour do a co a joint event? And the answer yeah. is money. I mean, it's just I, I, you got to give up basically half of the spots to LPGA players, or I, I don't I don't know exactly how it would work. I just know the the PGA Tour is not incentivized to do it, and I don't think that that's really anywhere close to being to. I've not heard anything that makes me think that's going to happen anytime soon. All right, cool. But that'd be fun. I, I agree. I would watch that. Um, but Solly, maybe what they can do is reroute Pebble and then have the <laughs> tournament there. <laughs> so that's, we get all of our wishes can come true. <laughs> Keith Pelly's busting through that door. Oh, you want me to reroute Pebble? I'll reroute Pebble. Oh, I'll give yeah, a damn. Um, LPGA has canceled their Asian swing due to the coronavirus. This just came out, I think, today. Um, Yeah, I think that is the... I'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that that disagrees with that decision. I don't... It, I, I don't have enough, enough yeah. information to say, like, oh, there's nothing to fear. And obviously there is there is fear and putting the health and safety of the players and, and everyone involved as a top priority is probably the right decision, I would have to imagine. So props right. to them on that. My. All right. Uh, Go ahead. Have you, have you ever read The Stand by Stephen King? I have, can't say that I have. Okay. So, like, the first 250 pages of the book are, like, about, like, this uh, bacterial virus that basically, like, kills 90% of the world's population. And sometimes I wonder, like, it sort of slowly takes place over, like, six months or something. And, like, every time one of these things, whether it's bird flu or coronavirus or Ebola or whatever comes up, I'm like, huh, I wonder if this is, like, the beginning of the stand, like, six months from now. It's, like, it's just going to be, you know, 
like there's gonna be like 10 people in my neighborhood and we're gonna be fighting over the same rotted apples at the grocery store because that's all there is to eat anyway it's hard to bring uh, it down <laughs> yeah um anyway there was all those memes going around the internet about oh like excited for the 20s and then you remember the 1920s had a plague the 1820s had a plague the 1720s had a plague and it hits within the first month of the year but anyways we're not uh health advisors here or experts but um, speak for yourself Christopher. <laughs> I, someone needs to just wrestle this coronavirus to the ground oh well on, on that note antifaldo asked do you think mr player is upset that we didn't learn more about global warming in the 70s not because we could have taken more strenuous measures earlier but because they could have scheduled a tournament in antarctica and he could have claimed to have won on all seven continents Little does Antifaldo know, I've already won a tournament there. It was just me and a guide. I won it shirtless. <laughs> Global warming would have been great for everyone because it would have swept off some of the more fattiness of the fatties out there. It would have been a lot easier to keep in shape. Oh, it's never going to get... I promise it's never going to get old. Um, all right, it's time to tackle... The most important topic, I would say, in the game of golf, or the most important news in the game of golf this past week, um, I'm just going to start this discussion on the distance report by saying I'm going to con contradict myself right off the bat, uh, okay. and probably throughout the rest of this conversation as well, but I sincerely appreciate when people or companies, in this case, or governing bodies, are willing to put their hand up and admit when they are wrong, okay? Just because mm -hmm. you've said something for every year for 15 years, just pulling a random number out of my hat, uh, that doesn't mean you should say it forever. They could have carried on forever, but it appears mm -hmm. that there is a stop in our future for the ball going as far as it does uh, in the game of golf. So kudos for that. Yeah. Now, at the same exact time, what in the hell could have possibly <laughs> taken so long? Like People have been screaming this from the rooftops for decades, and they're just now mm -hmm. telling us, that distance is an issue in 2020. A lot of the damage is done. I am fascinated to see how much toothpaste they're able to get back in the tube. What do, what do you say to that? Uh, I guess, you know, similar, like better late than not at all. Um, but I don't know. Like, it's really hard to go backwards in time with sports. Um, uh, it's funny. Like, I actually covered swimming for many years because I was the Baltimore Sun's Michael Phelps reporter. And so I watched some of this happen in swimming where like they had these suits were essentially like, you know, made swimmers into missiles and the swimming governing body was like at when I think I remember I covered a meet in Australia where Michael Phelps broke like seven world records. And after the Olympics in 08, the swimming governing body was like, you know what? We kind of were maybe asleep at the wheel on this. We're going to roll things back. And most of the swimmers were like, yeah, okay. okay. Like, I get it. Like, you know, it's, this is, this is how it's going to be. Like, this is how it's going to be. And obviously it's different because you have so much of golf economy, I guess probably runs on equipment money or whatever. But, um, I don't know. I was thinking about this today. It just seems like there is a marketing opportunity here for equipment companies that maybe they're not, kind of seeing like essentially marketing you know half of the stuff to say like hey look like we're gonna if you're an amateur we're gonna give you the best possible equipment and you're gonna be able to be awesome whatever but if you want to play like the pros like if you want to test your game the way they do here's the equipment for you too and maybe you should buy a little bit of each like maybe so you know you can sort of decide and yeah like at the highest level of like 
what do you do about the U.S. Amateur or whatever? What do you do about, you know, the, the what a Gold Horn Ferry Tour or college kids or whatever? Fine, we'll figure all that out. But at least to me now, like, there's a line kind of being drawn where it's like, hey, we have to fix this one way or another because they're just not going to watch people, like, maybe take it over the dog leg every time and hit the ball, you know, 375, 400 yards and kind of basically render some of the best pieces of property irrelevant. Like it would be super fun, I think. And I've always said, probably on this pod several times, the best way for this to happen is for Augusta to say, hey, you want to play our tournament? You're going to use our ball. Yep. And you don't like it? Goodbye. We don't care because we're happy to invite another person to take your spot. And they're the only ones with enough power to do it right now. And if they did it, then I think a lot of other, like the USGA or some of the individual tournaments would say, like, yeah, we're going to do that too. And the players, because the players wouldn't skip Augusta. They wouldn't pout and say, we're not, I'm not playing the Masters if I don't get to play my Pro V1 or my Chrome Soft FX or whatever. They would say, like, all right, like, uh, we'll do it. The Masters is important enough, and we're not going to go against them. Just emptying, emptying the tank right right off the bat. He's coming. <laughs> Here's what, like, <laughs> hey, can you think of any other sports where the at a certain level, the amateur level, the collegiate level, they use a device to hit a small white ball really far, yet <laughs> it's crazy to do that at the professional level. So they use a totally different material, and the ball goes significantly less distance. There's so many more elements. The balls that are hit closer to the heel of this, el- this device go f- less far, and balls that are hit way off of the toe of it go less far. Is there any example of that in sports? I can't think of any. Do you have any? No, I never. I mean, definitely not the beer league softball. League so, like, what's the what's the di- why? Why would we care about the blurred line between the top level of amateur golf and then professional golf in golf if we don't care about it in baseball? I mean, people, how long does it take to adjust to? And I know it's not apples to apples, but that's a pretty damn good comparison of like, hey, yeah, you want to go play like professional ball? Okay, now you're a pro. Go use the wooden bat. Like go to go ride go to rookie ball and go use the wooden bat and see how you do. And that's I think that uh, yeah. yeah. I think you just have to have your governing body take a stand. And what's part of what's hard is that the governing body for golf isn't the best players, whatever. It's the USGA, whatever. And so play the best players in the world obviously like hate the USGA in some ways. And so you're you're asking like these, you know, essentially fractured different things to kind of help get together and rule on one different thing or another. I, I, I just think it's, if they draw the line in sand and they basically say like, this is how it's going to be. And they are able to sort of fight off whatever inevitable lawsuit is people will get used to it and they'll be okay with it in a few years time. Like it isn't going to yeah. bring about the collapse of the whole, you know, industry. There isn't going to be thousands of people laid off. It's all these doomsday scenarios about, you know, we'll never adjust to this. This is you're you're gonna ruin the game. Like the economics of the game. Like I just don't buy that. You can pull this from my cold dead hands. Yeah, those are scare tactics. Like this isn't the Second Amendment. You know, this isn't this doesn't tend to take it this seriously. Like it just and what I think too would help in some ways is if they sort of explained some of this well, better. Why don't we do that? Why don't we go? Let's go into the report and let's let's try to explain some of this point by point, and then we can mix in some commentary. So, okay. uh, we have some notes here. I, I've I pulled some some nuggets from the report that I think are most relevant to the overall conversation. If you have the agenda in front of you, I'll read A, you read B, and then I'll read C. Does that work? That's work. Perfect. So. 
All right, so from the report, the USGA has noted, an enduring foundation of golf is that success in getting a ball from the tee to the hole in the fewest strokes should depend on using many different skills and judgments rather than be dominated by only one or a few. In our view, it is essential for this to remain true for play at the diverse golf courses across the world without the need for them to keep getting longer. In summary, we believe that golf will best thrive over the next decade and beyond if this continuing cycle of ever-increasing hitting distances and golf course lengths is brought to an end. Longer distances, longer courses, playing from longer tees, and longer times to play are taking golf in the wrong direction and are not necessary to make golf challenging and enjoyable or sustainable in the future. Yeah, so off the bat here, kind of similar to what I said at the top of this, uh, a little bit of, you know, golf clap, pee in the potty, like you did it, like you've said all the things that we've said for quite some time are going on with the game of golf. And I, I will admit to have not being, I am definitely not a leader in this conversation. When I first got into, you know, working in golf, I thought it was really cool how far people hit it. I did, I did not understand. I remember seeing Ricky Fowler hit a nine iron from like 198 at Valhalla and people were like, like commenting on that being bad. And I was like, you're an old, old fart. Like, you're an idiot. Like, that's so cool. All the young guys just hit it really far. You don't understand it yet. And, like, a couple years later, I learned pretty quickly, like, oh, this is this is not good. Like, this is really, 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 really not good for the game of golf. So yeah. the conversation can often get weave in and out of dis- how much should distance be rewarded as a skill. And I think we can all agree that it is a skill but what we've seen is that skill being rewarded more and more, and I think that's what the USGA is admitting here, that that distance is pretty much overweighing and kind of limiting the other skills that you need because of how important it's become. So um, the correlation in the data is there to prove it. And basically, they finally had to ask themselves, why is that the skill the most important one? It became the most important one, and I think they basically were like, that's not... I don't think the most exciting shot of a golf hole, the most important shot should be the tee shot. So why should that be the one that gets rewarded the most? So for them, kudos on that one. Why don't you, uh, why don't you take us to the next one? Cause the next nugget here, cause I think this is the big one and the most important kind of development from this. And then we're going to get to kind of what's going to happen over the next couple months. But uh, what, what are they proposing here? The big one here, this proposes will assess the potential use of a local rule option that would specify the use of clubs and or balls intended to result in shorter hitting distances. This is what I was sort of talking about with Augusta. Mm -hmm. The concept is the equipment meeting a particular set of reduced distance specifications. For example, a ball that does not travel as far or a club that will not hit it as far might be defined subset of an overall category of conforming equipment. This could allow committees that conduct golf competitions or oversee individual courses to choose by local rule authorized under the rules of golf, whether and when to require that such equipment be used. Such a local rule option could be available for use at all levels of play, and golfers playing outside a competition could also have the option to make the choice for themselves. Which I think that's great. It's great. It is. I, I worry about this a little bit, though, right off the bat. And I, I don't know this. I don't know what the PGA Tour's stance on this is currently or what it's going to be. But it seems a little bit like passing the buck. And mm-hmm. that I, I would have to think in, in doing this study that they've been in communication with the Tour I would hope that they're at least somewhat aligned, but it kind of seems a little bit like, hey, it's going to be up to the PGA Tour. Like, we're making a local rule, and if the Tour says, no, 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 we like advertising how far these guys hit it, we're going to keep it that way. Like Fincham said, when the USGA kind of kicked around this conversation, you know, within the last decade, there was at least one point 
that the USGA came to the tour and said, hey, will you support us if we you know, try to limit this? And Fincham's answer was no. Obviously, it's a new regime, a new regime with the PGA Tour under Jay Monahan. I don't know what the response is going to be. I like that they're at least opening up this possibility, but I would hope that this all gets rolled together with one with a with a mission in mind that says in professional golf we're rolling back the equipment. You know what I kind of wish that we could sort of one of the things that I think is sort of missing in the sort of discussion here is that. It's, it would be okay if you could still, to me, if you could still hit the ball really far, but that the misses were more severe yes. if you missed it. It's a huge, it. huge, so, huge, huge element of all of this. Because, look, Jack Nicklaus could always hit it really far, like farther than anybody on tour. Like, he was the big kahuna back then or whatever. But when you missed the dime-sized sweet spot with those clubs, the ball was going way offline, and you were screwed. And that's what made Jack so good, is he was not only really powerful – but he was really accurate and consistent. And so there was guys back then who could hit it as far as him sometimes, but they couldn't do it as consistently. So like if you had a, if you if you changed the ball and said like it's going to spin a lot more and you you'd still probably see Rory and DJ and guys hit it, you know, really far. But there sometimes when they missed it, when they decided to really ramp it up, the ball would go way off the planet. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think would make it fair again would make it interesting it's like say like if you if you're so against limiting distance then and, and the other thing that i think that we don't really talk about enough is so you're like a scratch player right that's really good but who's counting we continue but see even even shout out to our, our man tom coin even a plus two is is shit compared to like a pga tour player a corn fairy tour player whatever just not even you're not even in the same universe no. sally the benefits that tour players get from the equipment being optimized or whatever and the ball being optimized at this level is something that most almost i would say 0.5 percent of amateurs are not going to really take advantage of like you might be able to at a as a plus two like hit the ball farther or whatever but even me as like a seven or an eight or like someone who's a 10 they're just not going to be able to compress the ball enough to make it make a difference. So they're probably not going to lose any distance, even if they play with these reduced flight balls, because they're going to go the same amount they went before because their swings aren't good enough to make a difference. And so that's where like the fear tactics, I think, are sort of silly is because you can sit there and tell me like, oh, well, if you reduce the, the, the how far the ball goes, like then so-and-so is not going to buy a $500 driver because he's going to feel like, oh, he can't do it anyway. He can't, it's all freaking smoke and mirrors. He can't swing the ball like on an upward angle that's going to launch it freaking at 120 miles an hour anyway. So it's not benefiting him. It's just all fake. It's all marketing, right? Well, it's <laughs> this is where my, my I hope this, this is probably going to come off as a... Uh, Conflict of interest with our, of course, our Callaway sponsorship. I think you're definitely on the right path. For sure, it is not a one-to-one benefit. The the tour players are maxing out the benefits of these drivers way more than anyone that you know walks into a Dick Sporting Goods and buys a Callaway or Titleist or TaylorMade driver. That's I don't think there's anyone out there that's going to argue that. I do think that the current technology, without any doubt, helps the mid handicap amateur player so much because it this is why I argue for bifurcation. I've always argued for bifurcation is it eliminates some of the not eliminates, but it diminishes those misses that you're talking about. You know, if yep. Rory's swinging a 
280cc driver instead of 460cc driver, he's going to hit a couple ones a little bit more squirrely. There's just not enough space on that head. You know, like these guys hit balls off the toe sometimes, and it curves right to left, right down the fairway. Amateur players are going to hit balls not on the center of the face. And I have absolutely no problem with them getting the benefit of the current technology to make that ball go straighter. If that means they're going to find more balls, have more fun, the whole point of us playing this game, it isn't about, it is partially about getting the ball in the hole in a short amount of strokes, but we do it for fun. Like the end of the day, this is why like the best argument for Sweetens is, you know, some people say that's not like real golf. It's kind of like, miniature golf and it's really easy it's like okay what the what the hell are we doing out there we're doing this to have fun why would we why would we take this away from people off the streets i love the equipment i think it's great but i think it'd be very reasonable if it was like oh hey dude if you want to compete at this level you can't use that because that is almost cheating how good of equipment that that stuff is it really is that good and it's been proven by pros and by amateurs just how freaking good this stuff is and I just think that from an entertainment standpoint at the top level, it's gotten to be where it's not that entertaining anymore. And it would be way more fun if the guys had different challenges they had to face other than just hitting it really far. Yeah, I just think it would be more fun if there was more variety in the terms of kind of player that could exist. You know, if if you're a Corey Pavin type uh, who's trying to make it as a professional golfer, and maybe that's the equivalent of Zach Blair, like it's just really hard for you to to be able to do that. And I don't think like Corey Pavin's winning a major like this in this era, just because it's just you're unless you can get it out there 300 yards, like you're really unless they're going to start holding majors at Royal Melbourne where distance is sort of taken away because of the firmness, it's it's just not going to work. And I, I think it'd be more fun if like that was kind of was always neat about golf, and it's what still kind of exists over in the British Open. Is like Ben Curtis could win, you know, a British Open. Like if you just you don't have to whack it down as far as you can because there's too many like quirky elements in play, right? And so I just wish that there was more of that because it's kind of fun when that's what made golf special is that it wasn't always the biggest, brawniest guy. It was the guy who could sort of think his way around or you know learn how to take on less risk but be more accurate. That's what made the Vic Open such great viewing is some of the tee shots mm-hmm. were just like, oh, I wonder if he's going to play this up the left or right. I mean, I don't really – so he's got two iron. He This guy's hitting driver. That's interesting because that's going to bring that bunker in play. But it wasn't these dumbass holes. And this is where, you know, we're, we're mixing so many things with architecture and design. But these dumbass PGA Tour holes that are 475 yards with a slight dog leg. That's really just like, hey, there's two bunkers on each side of the fairway. Hit it far and straight between those bunkers is not interesting. And that's what golf has become because of all this emphasis on driving. But, God, okay, we got we, that's a lot of, lot of things. There's a couple more points in the report that I want to get to, and then we can round out our conversation. So what also the USGA and RNA are announcing that they plan to do, we will also review the overall conformance specifications for both clubs and balls, including specifications that both directly and indirectly affect hitting distances. So a point in that is both clubs and balls. I think a lot of people, when you say roll back the ball, People assume you are just talking about the golf ball, which personally, when I say that, I am not, but we're going to get to that. Um, Mm -hmm. Back to the report. The intended purpose of this review is to consider whether any existing specifications should be adjusted or any new specifications should be created to help mitigate the continuing distance increases. It is not currently intended to consider revising the overall specifications in a way that would produce substantial reductions in hitting distances at all levels of the game. 
That last part is really important because I think that at all levels of the game is definitely a very noteworthy part. I don't think anything from this report is really affecting amateurs too greatly. If it is, it's not going to be great. Um, And I don't think it's going to – the substantial reductions, we're not going to see – a 20% rollback. Even We're not even going to see a 10% rollback. I don't even know if there's going to be a rollback. I just think they're finally going to be like, we're not getting longer. I think that's the at minimum threshold that they need to clear. Um, and I just don't think it's going to be like, hey, we're going back to Bellatas and Persimmons. I just don't think that's a reality. No, I don't think so either. And I think like, I also think that the, the companies, equipment companies can sort of learn how to sort of remarket themselves or adjust within whatever limitations we have on it. I mean, in some ways they already did it when they basically said, Hey, you can't have driver heads that are bigger than, you know, 460 CCs, whatever. That wasn't that long ago that they kind of drew that line in the sand. And so then it was like, well, okay, we're going to focus on ball speed or whatever. And that's how like, you know, Callaway came up with the jailbreak technology and like the TaylorMade came up with that, their thing and stuff. And so the golf companies are going to adjust. Like it, there isn't all this R and D money isn't being poured into this stuff, you know, for it's just on a whim. Like they're, they have all kinds of like MIT ties scientists working on this stuff. So they're going to find different ways to sort of say like, all right, now this science will help you be more accurate, and that's the best way for you to get better at golf or whatever. And that's, it's just going to create new opportunities for me. It can't just all be about distance because so it's gotten to the point where so much about distance that some companies are marketing clubs that are like, you know, a six iron is is what used to be a four iron, you know, if they're just changing the lofts on it and saying like, Oh, it's, it's, it actually still works this way because of the way that we launches it higher in the air and stuff. And like, not really. Like, it's just, there's so again, like you aren't going to pick up 13 yards of distance every single year. So, you know, what, what ways are, are you going to get better at golf? Like, okay, you know, this will make you more accurate. At least that might be the next really way to, to sort of get people to buy stuff. That would help me a lot. I think the biggest the biggest thing, if I if honestly if I was to put it in one sentence, it would be reintroducing risk with the driver. I yeah. think when I am this happened to me at my tournament last week. When I was coming down the stretch, I was feeling just a little off with my swing. I didn't feel great. And I honestly started hitting bunt drivers because I didn't feel great about getting a three wood head out. Like the driver heads are just so big that it feels like the safest club in the world to, to, to hit. And that's where I think a lot of, you know, it's become very safe to hit driver in that some of the longest players in the game can hit driver to get past all of the trouble, and that's the safest possible play. Like the shot DJ hit in the playoff of the Northern Trust against Spieth, he, it was like, oh, oh, so ballsy, hit driver over all that. No, no, no. He had an 80-yard wide fairway once that wind yeah. shifted because that was the, the, there was no risk in that shot. And that's where there should never be a shot where even the longest hitters, I know there's skill in hitting it really long, but there should not be a shot that those guys can hit on the PGA Tour that is super safe to swing as hard as you can. Like that should not be yeah. where the balance and the risk is. So, yeah. Um, a couple more things from the report. We believe that a continuing trend of increased hitting distance is leading to two undesirable outcomes over time. An altered skilled challenge for the longest hitting golfers when playing the same length courses as in the past, and two, many golf courses continuing to become longer to offset the increased distance. I mean, honestly, I, I even in the notes, I haven't even noted all of the environmental concerns, all the like the dollar and cents reasons why it makes no sense for all of these golf courses just have a tee box that is, you know, Augusta National bought a road and moved it. I mean, like, what the hell? <laughs> Augusta National, the most 
famed golf course in the world, at minimum the uh, top three golf course in the world. We're moving roads. Why does it make Why does it make sense to do this to the works of art that are existing in this world in golf? It just has never made sense to like. Hey, we could either control the equipment or we could change all the ballparks. I don't understand how they never controlled the equipment. Oh, I'm getting worked. Twenty-five million <laughs> minimum, at least. I think that was the estimate. It cost twenty-five million to buy that extra land from the Augusta Country Club. And just do like the argument. Yeah, like yeah, keep moving. I love it. Move the tees back. Okay, you're not the one paying for it. Like you're spending someone else's money, and I, we do that a lot on this podcast. But that's a lot to say. Like. What there's thirty three thousand golf clubs, I think it said they said in the report in the world. Yeah, just hey, keep telling them, hey, keep moving, keep moving tees back, keep buying houses, bulldoze them, and keep building tees. It just doesn't make sense. I, you know, it's funny. Like sometimes you hear the argument about like who cares what par is. Like why why would it? You know why not just have thirteen in Augusta play as essentially a long par four anymore? And I think like what you know it, that was neat to see Tiger like tear up Augusta in 1997 hitting, you know, nothing less than eight iron into every single green because it had never been done before. And so it was like this awe-inspiring, like, oh my God, this is a rare athlete who's like, now it happens all the time. And so it's, it's lost its sort of specialness. And so you could sit there and say like, oh yeah, well, why would you care? Well, look, if, if we get to the point where guys are hitting flip wedge into 13 every time and making an Eagles, not that special, then that's where it kind of doesn't matter. Like part of what makes the master special is that you're comparing it to every other year that you've watched it like growing up. And so like if, if suddenly an Eagle on 13 is like regular routine, then of course, then that's what sort of why an argument for sort of taking it back. Because part of what makes 13, one of the best golf holes in the world is it's risk reward. It's like, do you want to take a four iron off an uneven lie and go for that green, and try to get close. That's what my, Mickelson going hitting six iron out of the trees is such a sort of iconic thing because it was like he brought in so much trouble he could have easily chipped it down there but he went for it and if you're taking out the element of risk to it because you're just fl- flying it down when Bubba hit it what 370 when he beat Spieth that year and he took it left over the top of the trees and Jordan was like yeah I thought he hit it 30 yards out of bounds and all of a sudden he's got the flip wedge into that green like that wasn't that wasn't special. That was just like, oh man, like what? This has got to, something's got to change here. Yeah, something's not right. I mean, when you've when you've defeated the purpose of the challenge, and mm-hmm. again, it's an eye rolling thing for a lot of people to be like, how the architect intended it. But the point is exactly what you said for the thirteenth at Augusta is, you know, hey, if you want to take more risks, this is what Bernard Longer has always done. He was so accurate with the driver that he could he would tug that driver to the left side and which is taking on way more risk getting close to that hazard but he would get a flatter lie into the 13th mm-hmm. with that shot and a lot of other people just wanted to see their ball in the fairway and they'd get up there and they'd have the ball hanging above their feet and they would do the Brand Snedeker thing where they hit it in the water every time and it's just it there was so much shot value in that drive and now when you can bomb it over the corner with driver some guys even hit 3 wood around the corner You've defeated the whole purpose of the hole. Like, why even have the hole there? Like, I, I've I've always hated the idea of moving that tee back, but now I'm kind of like, you know what? Reintroduce trying to hug it close to that corner and bring in a ton more yeah. risk with that second shot because now it is a par four and a half. But they've they're skipping past the challenge, and that is again where I keep ending up at is so many of the shots now just skip past the challenge. It's not that hard to hit it far and straight. 
And that's where they're eliminating most of the difficulty in a golf hole. So, yeah. Um, so, again, back to the report. For golfers playing from the longest tees, the inherent strategic challenge presented by such a course and its individual holes can eventually be compromised when, and there's a list of three things, when hole playing length gets relatively shorter, golfers are more often able to play higher lofted approaches or to use shorter clubs off the tee, which can make it easier to reach the green in regulation or to hit a fairway than it once was the case. So if it's a long hole, like today, Phil hit iron and both Nick Taylor and Phil hit iron off the six tee, a par five. Uh, at Pebble Beach, and he hit six iron into the green. So that's exactly what they're talking about there. Uh, the second thing, bunkers, dog legs, elevation changes, or other features intended to create strategic obstacles on holes may be more easily avoided or become out of play, reducing the need for creative recovery shots and risk-reward choices. Directly relates to the 13th hole at Augusta, like we were just discussing. And the third thing, overall, the increased hitting distance with driver may allow some holes to effectively to be effectively overpowered, rewarding an emphasis on sheer distance at the expense of accuracy and other long-standing skills. So at this point, this is the point where I just want to give absolute praise to the USGA for the thoroughness of this report. For mm-hmm. basically, I, I can't nitpick the report. I can't say, hey, you missed the boat on this. I'm sure there are there's a lot of people out there that have studied it closer than I have, but they are flat out saying all the things and elements that we've said for years on this podcast and in many other places that say, hey, guys, something's out of balance here, and here's why, and they state it in there. So I encourage people, I know we're reading some highlights, but go read it just if, in case you still are on the other side of this argument of like, hey, well, I don't see what the big deal is. I let him, let him, let him wail on it. It's like, no, 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 here's why. Here's why it's important and it's probably the most important aspect of the game today. Didn't you tell me, if, like this is a year ago, so that you played like an old Seth Rainer course somewhere in Florida where you could just take it over the dog leg every time and you shot like 69 and you were kind of like, yeah, I mean, it, it was nice, but it was like, I felt you know, dirty. It, it was, yeah, I shot, uh, yeah. it was, it was 68 just to be, just to be clear, but oh, uh, thanks. yeah, it was just kind of like, yeah, the greens were cool, but man, I was like, man, I hit like nine irons, wedges and, and pitches into every hole. And I don't think that's how that was supposed to be. I, I, it was really cool to play. It was Mountain Lake in, in uh, down south of Orlando. I think that's where it's located. And it just was kind of, I felt unfulfilled after it. I mean, I felt great about playing a good round, but I also felt just dirty about some of the corners I was cutting. And, you know, the, the fairways are, are wide, but they just were not designed for people of, you know, that aren't professionals to hit it as far as I'm able to hit it with a wonderful Callaway driver. So. So, um, so there is, yeah, there's that. Um, okay. The last couple things from the report, and then we can get back to just, uh, just going hard on this, even beyond the specific issues discussed above the long-term cycle of hitting distance and course length increases has helped to create a degree of emphasis on distance that we believe is unnecessary and untimely at odds with, with golf's long-term best interest. So this part right here. I wanted to emphasize because even though there's not a pure mission statement that came out of this, you cannot put that in a report and do nothing. Like they have made their bed, yep. they are going to sleep in it. You cannot put that sentence and this last part um, for the reasons stated above. We believe that it is time to break the cycle of increasingly longer hitting distances and golf courses and to work to build a long-term future that reinforces golf's essential challenge and enhances the viability of both existing courses and courses yet to be built. 
There's a war coming, Chris. <laughs> There's a war coming. Which side are you? So let's get to that. What's the war? So if I'm a, if I'm coming off the street, I'm just kind of learning about this history of the of golf distance. Space. What's the war? Who who's going to war here? Well, I would suppose that it, I mean, obviously, the equipment companies are going to fight. But this. why? Ex- explain yeah. to me why. Because even I. I I would like to consider myself somewhat an expert on this, but I still struggle mm-hmm. with this concept. Why are the equipment companies going to be freaked out about this? I would say that they've probably would argue uh, we've put a ton of uh, R&D into our products and you kind of making up rules uh, that says uh, we have to limit that sort of messes with our intellectual property and what um, right do you have, I guess, to sort of – I always said they would maybe challenge the legitimacy of the role that the USGA plays as the sort of rules-making governing body over professional golf. Um, so that's where I think it has the potential to get ugly and dirty is, you know, in some ways, the fact that golf – kind of allows the USGA to essentially set its rules, professional golf. Uh, I kind of wonder if they, if this might lead to essentially them saying like, you know what? We no longer feel like uh, the USGA should rule over us and the PGA tour is going to make its own rules. And, you know, then that's going to be kind of interesting because that's where the, the tour's frustration in that it doesn't control any of the majors is going to be. And what if the tour says, oh, you know what? You know what the majors are now? They're Riviera and Sawgrass and Torrey Pines and, you know, I don't know, the Northern Trust, whatever, something, the fourth one. Like they could, there's nothing really saying what the majors are. So that's where, like, I think it could be fascinating and it's kind of like ugliness. If How ugly do you want it to be? Do you want to essentially say, like, hey, you know what, Mike Davis, like, thanks, peace out, but you don't. Like make the this rules is DJ's for, take of hey I didn't, I didn't vote for the USGA <laughs> who am I saying that they covered me <laughs> exactly but that's I mean, what makes me nervous about the local been, rule like that right there what you're yeah. just saying I mean if the tour says nah now nah, we're good like what 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 can the USGA really actually do I don't know I guess it sort of you know it, it sort of goes at to the prestige of the US Open right if that's the one thing that they control and they're going to say. Uh, this is what we say the rules are, and you don't want to follow them. We're still going to stand by this. Will professional players boycott the U.S. Open? You know, there's there's this talk of whatever boycotting the U.S. Open at Golf Digest got all these you know 30 tour players to say they were going to do it. And I think Rory confirmed later he was one of them that was sort of contemplating it because of the, they thought the USGA was sort of a clown show. Like there's a real situation where if, if the USGA says this is what it's going to be, we're going to allow tournaments to to have a local rule and guess what's going to be one of those tournaments is the u.s open uh and the pga tour players the association says we're not buying that will a bunch of them basically punt on playing the u.s open and what will that mean for professional golf it could get real ugly you know it's that's why we joke because there's a war coming i think it, it is it's it's not going to go away because it when you when you write this stuff down and you put it out there you better be ready to fight, and I think uh, that's why it's probably taken this long. We talked, we asked about what took so long. Yeah, it's because they knew that when it when it did, when they laid down the gauntlet, that it was going to get ugly, and I think it will because it. I don't know that there's a backroom sort of like compromise here that's going to make you know all the equipment companies uh, and the players happy yeah. because the players 
they don't want golf to be harder, man. They don't want to miss more with driver. They love being able to just rip it and bomb it. Yeah. You know? No, that's you're convincing me slowly <laughs> that there is going to be a war. I guess so. This is where, and I'll be completely honest to everyone listening. If you think there's any, you know, like I said, conflict of interest with us having an equipment sponsor, they have never dictated or even asked, dictate or you know, questioned us. You know, suggested to us to say anything of any stature, both against or for any rollback, anything. Legitimately, we our opinions are our own. So there is, and this is it's quite almost to the opposite. There isn't another equipment company that has been the leader of the conversation that has been against any kind of rollback and has essentially promoted against at all costs, you know, you know, made presentations to say, hey, it's just firmer the and the athletes are better and hey, look over here, yet still advertising that their golf ball goes really far and is really good. And you will get no argument from me that their golf ball is really good, but that is where I sense that people believe that there's to be a, a war to come and that uh, a Kushnet would be the one that is forcing the issue from a legal perspective. Is that is that what you think is going to happen? I just I don't know. I still don't know why this would. Yeah. Th- so the argument there is that they have such a huge market share with their golf ball that the only thing that right. could come from this is to lose market share. And I, I I don't quite fully see the logic in it. I'm not saying that it's a poor logic. I just personally don't see how. At the top level, they use a little different ball that it really changes how amateurs buy golf balls. But do you see it differently? Well, I think it's just kind of an example of how if you are the kind of winner in capitalism, then you don't want anything to change. Yeah. Like even if you could sort of say, you know, look, like in the long run, this would be better and you'll do fine. You might not do like, you know, 75% of the ball market fine. You might do 65% or whatever. Like if I'm a business, if I'm a CEO and I have shareholders to please or whatever, I'm going to be like, screw you, man. Like we're not, we're not going in with that. Like it's every, every company for itself. And, uh, and so we're going to fight this to the, to the death essentially. So, I mean, I don't, you know, titles makes great golf balls. And I don't know that, like, I don't know how it's going to dramatically change their market share if, all golf balls are at the professional level limited, but they feel like, why would we not uh, we risk that? You know, want to yeah. fight this? Why would we? You know? Why would we want to introduce that variable? I think, but so I don't, I don't know. know. It's kind of eye rolling, though. Some <laughs> you can tell which of their players just are reading straight from the propaganda. Um, Paul Casey and Billy Horschel had some tough takes on uh, <laughs> on Twitter this past week. Paul Casey said the golf courses became longer because the golf developers said if we can make the courses longer. We can get four more holes on that, four more houses on that hole, and two more on that hole. That's more money, and that's when the manufacturers and the players, including the amateurs, rose to the challenge. They had to start hitting the ball longer. I don't like us players and the manufacturers getting the blame. We're not the only ones to blame. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for the history lesson, Mr. Casey. I don't think that's really what happened. First of all, does Paul play a lot of tournaments that are lined with houses? Uh, <laughs> Doubting that like that's accurate. I, I don't uh, think. It, yeah, I don't think that it's like, hey, let's make golf holes really long now so we can build houses on them. It might have been. It, it might have been the horse might have been in front of the cart, man, on this one. I don't know. Maybe just maybe, man. Also, the logic of that is so whack because it's like the the amount of land is fixed, man. Like you're not like the, no developers being like, all right, well, we should buy a little bit more land so that we can put a longer. The, the designer comes in and is like, all right. What do we got here? Like, oh, we got 
500 yards to work with. Okay. Like how many houses you want to put in? All right. I'll tell you where I want the tees to be. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work the the way in reverse. Why wouldn't they just make every hole a par five if all they were trying to do was build, (laughs) sell houses? Oh man, Rory would be so good at that course. Billy Horschel, he says, I agree the Pro V1 made a massive difference, but probably the thing that has the same effect, the same effect as the ball over the last 10 years or so would be radar measuring devices, TrackMan or products similar to TrackMan. Mr. Horschel, may I ask you a question? If I'm going to take away one of these things, uh, one being the combination of your driver and your golf ball or your track man, which one would you prefer that I take away? Which one are you going to let me take away? <laughs> this, see, this is an opportunity for Billy to get on board with my take, which is that we should limit the height of tees. Ooh, I've always because loved there's this no one. big. There's so as uh, those who are not familiar with those who are not frequent members of the uh, NLU message board. There's no big T lobby to push back against this, right? This, the, I don't think big T has a lot of power. So to me, like, as you understand a little bit about the golf swing, which I only understand like a little bit, but like part of what makes them be able to hit it so far is that they launch the ball up. When guys learned how to essentially like increase their launch angle, that's what it led to a lot of huge gains in distance. So if you limited the height to tees to say like two inches or three inches, whatever, most guys would still kind of have to hit down on the ball and that would naturally like reduce distance. You can have the same clubs, you can have the same ball. You might just hit it 15, 20 yards shorter because you just aren't able to sort of like sky it as much as you used to. And I feel like who's going to fight back against this. So maybe Billy should be, get on board with the KV take to save golf by just saying we're, we're going to, instead of taking away your R and D, whatever, man, like you, a lot more people are going to have to hit three wood off the tee because you're just not going to be able to launch it. In the air. A, he, he tees it kind of low. I think if I remember right, anyways, this would be great for him. I, I just love Apparently. the arguments from the people that are using all the technology that the technology is not that big of a difference, yet they're also trying to sell you on the technology being amazing for your game. It's like, wait, you got to pick one, guys. This goes to Titleist, too, guys. It's like, guys, your golf ball goes far. Like the Callaway Chrome Soft, it goes far. Like the Taylor May ball, it goes far. They all go far. They're all great golf balls. Don't try to give us a study that shows, oh, it's just, you know, the turf conditions and the athletes are what's making it go far. Your golf balls go far. It's it's what you're selling us on. That's why that's why people buy them. I mean, come on. <laughs> you can't talk out of both ends of your mouth. Whenever I think about it in terms of baseball, I think like if whenever you see like a baseball player hit a home run that goes like into the upper deck, if you're into baseball, you're like, wow, that ball was mashed. Now imagine every home run goes into the upper deck. You'd be like, eh. Well, that one, I want to see one go out of the stadium because that's the only thing that's going to excite me. And in golf, what is that essentially happening is that every other drive goes into the upper deck. And so it's not that special anymore. Yeah. And so that's what I don't think like the players are sort of grasping. Is it like it doesn't seem to be a particularly like great skill for people who follow golf that closely because it, I've there's no drive that someone could hit right now that would make me like be like, oh my God. I think Bubba, the last time it happened was when Bubba hit that shot yeah. on 13, just because he took it at such an insane angle that no one had ever really seen someone do. It's just like, I'm just like, eh, whatever. I moved past uh, two more Billy Horschel tweets, which one was, where am I blaming the course designers solely? I do think that course design over the last 20 years isn't anywhere as good as the designs from McKenzie, Ross, Rayner, and many other old school architects that I love. Yeah, man, you can't play those courses anymore because the ball anymore. goes to- yeah. 
And then, so this goes back to the housing thing, and he says, he was responding to somebody, he said, I was presented with a, with vast research a few years ago that showed in the 90s courses that started being built were being built dramatically longer than before. Developers wanted championship courses. It was believed a championship course you had to have length. Also, developers. Uh, it's like, okay. Developers. Yeah, it's the developer's fault. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's the, like and those Bryson, developers it's the caddies. Like it's the caddies that are slowing us down out there. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm pent yeah, up. I, mean, I intentionally stayed off the debate on Twitter because, like, Twitter is might be the worst place ever for nuanced conversation. Um, I still think maybe we need to have somebody on that will argue like very strongly for distance because we can be a little bit echo chambery here with how we think that distance. Uh, the game is not as good when the ball goes this far. Um, but anything else from this conversation that we, that we, uh, need to cover? No, I think we pretty much have beaten this horse to a bloody pulp, but I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I do wonder like in our lifetime, are we going to see it change or is it, you know, is the USDA going to sort of throw up its hands and say, all right, fine. Like we tried and, and, and there's just, we're, that's too much toothpaste yeah. out of the tube. I don't uh, know what's going to happen. Um, I'm just, again, want to congratulate the USGA on this on coming to this conclusion it was a long time coming but and i get why you haven't done it despite us making fun of you for not doing it um but here we are it's here and golf is going to change this is a landmark moment um i'd be hard pressed to i will argue with anyone that thinks it's not um two one thing i wanted to get out before we left bryson was named to si's top 50 fittest athletes we, uh yeah is bryson out is that. in the top 5,000 athletes in the world? I mean, look, I think, first of all, I just want to say, if Bryson's listening, Bryson, I think you're great for the game, even though you're, you're a weirdo, because I love different personalities. Uh, but that, that gif, whatever that he tweeted out uh, of himself, he just looks kind of like a chunky boy. He's like He doesn't boy look Bryson. like a fit athlete. Man. He's just thick. Like, I mean, look... God bless SI. Like I hope they hang in there, but it's just sort of evidence to me of like just kind of pandering to someone who they know would sort of tweet out their their link or whatever. Because I, Bryson, I don't even think Bryson's probably one of the top twenty five fittest golfers, <laughs> and he's certainly like he would be like the. I mean, look, we there's a great example of this. Is that like we talked all for years about what? Oh, Kepka's such an elite athlete, man. Kepka's so like. He's a linebacker man. And then when we had him post for ESPN Magazine for the body issue, he looked like a pretty much normal yeah. dude. <laughs> I mean, he was fit, sure. But, like, I mean, I've been in a lot of NFL locker rooms. And, like, I think Brooks would probably fit in with, like, the punters yes. in the NFL locker room, man. Like, and Glamour in an NBA muscles. locker room where those guys are 6'8 and they're, like, sinewy and ripped and have to run all night. No, I mean, have you ever seen Cristiano Ronaldo with his shirt off? Like, that's a fit mm-hmm. athlete. This is not like a thick boy who hits it, you know, three twenty like that. I, I still, I still think it's funny too that like Bryson thinks that this is like a good strategy for him so far when the results have been pretty disastrous thus far. I, I hope so because I like having him around, even though he's like an easy guy to kind of poke. How fun big at. is Brooks going to get? Is the only yeah. question I have. <laughs> <laughs> Another chip on the shoulder. Um, also, TC has been hearing that there's going to be a big Premier Golf League pitch uh, this week out in LA Ooh. to the players. So our ears will be to the street about how that goes. Um, Do you think it'll be like in the like secret back room, like in the Copacabana? I have or something? Absolutely no <laughs> idea. The first I'm hearing of this was tonight. So let's uh, 
let's see what happens. Anything else we're missing from this uh, this past week in golf? I think so. I mean, I you know I feel uh, ready for Riv. I, I love Riv, man. The Cats Riv is back. so great. But Riv is kind of like my fifth major. You know, it's, it's just I, I've been the last two years not going this year. Kind of sad about it, but of course it lets a lot of different people compete. A lot of fun history. Would it be neat if Tiger got 83 uh, here at Riv where he's never won? Like that'd yes, be kind would. of a, a neat. Yes, it would. He was he was pretty uh, lights out for a while for a stretch last year, like that Saturday when he was going nuts. Yeah, I got to tell you too. I we did the players media day this past week. I'm I'm weirdly amped for the players this year. I know we tease we tease yeah. uh, the tour about the players, but I'm I'm excited for it. I'm really excited for it. I kind of Jacksonville, having been here for three years now, it's uh it kind of got a little rhythm for the week, and I'm excited for it. So. I'm in on the players too. I got to say, like, I used to be sort of skeptical and like joke, like, oh man, like they're trying to make this a fifth major or whatever. I, man, it's fun. It's always, the players is great. I actually rewatched the other day um, when Ricky and uh, Kevin Kisner mm. were going at it in that playoff. And that, man, that, that, the, I wish we could get that version of Rick back. Guy was freaking throwing darts at pins and making like, you know, eagle birdie birdie to get into a playoff. Uh, that was really awesome. And that's, you know, it was awesome to watch Rory last year. There's too. one thing we know. I'm gonna go ahead. If there's one thing we know, that walk from 16 t to 17, 16 green to 17 t <laughs> is just about 50 to 100 yards too long. So, <laughs> 50 to 100 yards. God, did you read Rory's uh, second? I haven't two read part two yet. No, I will uh, hopefully get to that here <sighs> soon. But um, I just, I just want to be Rory's buddy. He's just such a. It's just there's just so many things in him that I'm like, God, what a real person. What a great like example for how a professional athlete. I wish they all were like this because just you he know. is the real one. So, KVV, thank you for joining us on your Sunday night and uh, for your contributions here. As always, we greatly, greatly appreciate them. But we needed a journalist for this very important conversation in today's uh, <laughs> today's game. So, well, you know, sometimes I play the role of journalist. Sometimes I play the role of bad Gary Player impersonationist. I w- so. <laughs> well, l- let me say goodnight to Mr. Player then as well, and. Uh, Wish you a, a happy uh, rest of the month and happy Black History Month to Mr. Gary Player. <laughs> Christopher, never ever bring that up again. That was a long time ago. I did not write those things. I, I don't know how they appeared, and I have deleted them from the internet. As my great friend Nelson Mandela would say, the best way to get fit is to go to prison for several You years. freed Nelson Mandela, didn't you, Mr. Player? I did. It's true. I just... I was responsible. I don't want to take all the credit, just most of it. (laughs) All right, sir. Thank you so much for joining, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Good night. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Ronnie, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.